0: Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the U.S., or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the U.S. to Asia, or $100 business class life tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com/mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp the number 4 and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. And we know you as a historian of science and technology, which is a very particular, very interesting field. How did you decide this is for you? How did you make this your own?
1: Really, like everything in my life just sort of happened by accident. I I never had any plan. I I just sort of followed the path of least resistance, and things happened to me. But but in some ways, becoming a historian of science was, a ver- was intentional in that early in my life, uh, you know, somebody wrote a book about me when I was in my 20s. So, so when I was 25, effectively, my biography came out, uh, which is way too young. And that's, that's extremely dangerous. So, so like, it's like rock music or something. You become incredibly well-known you know, the age of twenty one, what do you do? And so at twenty five I, you know, I became widely known as this guy who lived in a tree, tree house and, and built kayaks and and I kinda knew that I you know I would be that guy for the rest of my life if I didn't push you know, something else. So so that's sort of what pushed me into uh but but the actual becoming a historian, is you become a historian. Or you know, I had no credentials. I dropped out of high school, and so so all that happened by accident. I mean, the only way I became reputable was I wrote I wrote a book, and that that book was called Darwin Among the Machines. It was actually written in this. I'm in the what used to be the walk-in cooler where they. I'm in an old tavern on the waterfront, and this is where they used to keep the kegs of beer. So i wrote this insanely sort of strange book darwin wing machines in in this beer cooler bef- before there was internet so i had no if i wanted to use the internet i had to go up to the university and, and log in but but i wrote this book about the internet in this sort of dark quiet uh, beer cooler and it it somehow was the right book at the right time and so it sort of instantly i changed from you know being that guy who lived in the Treehouse to being that guy who wrote Darwin Among the Machines and uh, just sort of changed overnight.
0: What inspired you to write that book from what I understand? It, it details the history of technology, but it also makes predictions, right? It, it, it kind of extends
1: certain um, arcs into the future. Yes. At that time, of course, I I was still very naive and innocent and just, and thought, you know, thought I had all the ideas and the answers and, and had been you know up till then just a kayak builder so it, it, the, the way this happened was a, a very uh, fancy culture magazine in japan commissioned me to write an article about nature and technology and the, and the assumption was i would write about kayaks that's that's all i was supposed to know and and for some reason out of that frustration of why do they always just want to know about my kayaks or my treehouse i wrote an essay about computers taking over the world, how, how, when I had been a child growing up in Princeton, there was one computer and everybody, anybody in the world who, who you know, had a problem that could run on a code, coded, you know, von Neumann machine, they came there to use that one machine. And now, and now this was the 1980s, uh, late 80s, we're, we're living in a world where, you know, computers swapped, starting to swap floppy disks and uh, connect on networks. And stuff. so I sort of saw that, uh, coming and wrote this essay, and then a, you know a, a uh, literary agent read the essay and he called me up I was actually in Alaska when he, uh, at that time because he didn't have cell phones but I, I you know checked my messages and there was a message from this book agent in New York and he should there was no deep book about sort of the, the history of computer networks and you know a, in a sort of literary sense at that time. You know mainstream publishers weren't publishing books about computers it was really one publisher addison wesley and and they bought that book which was was just a complete risk on their part by a technical book on history of computing but from some kid who you know who's living in a tavern uh building kayaks but
0: i think we need to we need to uh, disclose that you had amazing access to the future of technology um, through your net, right, through Freeman Dyson, who's very famous for the Dyson Sphere that everyone in science fiction knows, um, how to harvest power from a star, and that's, that's still one of these big uh, strokes of, of, of genius and, and knowledge um, from our perspective as, as, as readers and, and followers of physics and what's going on in technology. Uh, when you said earlier, you, People wrote a biography about you. That was because you were that kid. You were you were the son of your father. Um, why were people interested in your, your your biography and in your personal life in the first place?
1: Yes, I mean, my my life was sort of um, <clears throat> set up. I mean, it, it was it was sort of low hanging fruit for a biography because I, my father, who was a theoretical mathematician most of his life, he had one really great adventure in his life. I mean, it was the adventure of World War II, where, where he was kept on the ground um, doing what we now call operations research for the Royal Air Force Bomber Command. But he didn't get to fly. And then later, when he after he came to America, he got a, deeply involved in a project called Project Orion. This was uh, started before NASA existed, sort of an answer to the Russian Sputnik and the plan was to build a really large spaceship, I mean, a spaceship the size of an ocean liner. Takeoff weight from the Nevada desert would have been 4,000 tons. And this was a serious project. It was funded, uh, it was actually the first project that ARPA funded, who later became known for creating the internet. And that was the, the great adventure of my father's life. And unfortunately, you know, it didn't happen, but I grew up. Of course, it started when I was five years old. It it was this fantastic dream. And then in my own life, I, in a way, repeated the same thing. I I built this crazy, enormous 48-foot kayak. It was sort of the Project Orion of of kayaks. And a writer, Kenneth Brower, who actually was the older brother of my childhood friend, uh, he just saw that, and so that's a story, you know, sort of the, the sort of mirroring of the, the the big kayak in the oceans of Earth and the giant spaceship in the oceans of space. It just it just. And he wrote a beautiful book about it. The book was was very successful for for kind of a good reason. It was this father son story that captured everybody's it's still in, it's still in print. It's back in print now with a foreword by Neil Stevenson. The science fiction writer who, who knew both of us and wrote wrote a very beautiful forward to the sort of twenty-five year, you know reprinting of this book.
0: Yeah, I I, I saw that Neil Stevenson is a big fan of yours. Yes, Um, he
1: he built (laughs) one of my he built one of my kayaks. He 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 not only built one of my kayaks, he also uh, with Jeff Bezos created a company that builds rockets. So Neil Neil is. hands-on, he doesn't just write about things, he you know, he goes out and does them. Yeah. Well, at first,
0: and maybe the, he probably, definitely not the first one who, who probably rediscovered that, but I read this book by Robert Subrin about this the, the need for space at the space yes. stage. Um, and he goes through a couple of different technologies just to see how we can get to the outer limits of the solar system and maybe beyond and uh, the Orion came up, and I was like, "Whoa, this is a good idea. Why, why, why didn't we try that? Um, why didn't we put this into operation at some point?" And it seemed to be based on a relatively simple technology, so to speak, so nuclear explosions um, that would um, power this spacecraft. Why was it never? Um, and I think it was was planned for quite some time. Why was it never built? Why was it never tested in the end?
1: That's. That's a complex story. The simple answer that, that the myth that people believe was that it ended because of the nuclear test ban treaty. And that's really not true. The, the test ban treaty concerns testing weapons. Uh, even after the test ban treaty, Ted Taylor, who, who really ran the project, he was pushing for, for still doing Orion as a, as a joint venture with the Soviet Union. And that, that would be completely allowable. Um, so the, the more important reason is is sort of American politics that it was not a NASA project and NASA didn't invent it, NASA didn't own it and effectively NASA would not support it. The, in order for it to politically move forward it, it had to uh, NASA had to support the mission and because it, because it used weapons for propulsion, the Air Force, had to to handle the propulsion so the model that works is is like science in antarctica where the navy supplies the ships that take the scientists to antarctica but the national science foundation supplies the scientists and does the science and that model could have worked for orion but but nasa really didn't want to support a project that you know would would have to use air force spaceships so so it kind of it's sort of the airport force, air force sort of kept it on life support for for a number of years and still maintained. you know they still have the files technical files on it and, and it's a, it was practically quite realistic because we we know how to make nuclear explosions we're very good at it it's it's the only way we really know how to uh harness nuclear energy in a, in a in a very effective way. The problem is we just we sort of haven't grown up as a species yet where we can, uh, you know, where we want to have a lot of very small nuclear weapons to not run the risk of them being used as weapons. Is that a project that was very well known to the
0: American or global public at the time? Or was it kind of quite hidden? Because I only heard about it like five years ago. That's the yeah, that, I've heard about th- it.
1: that's really the reason it couldn't succeed because it was kept secret because of the bombs. It had to be kept secret. I mean, there's, I, of course, when I wrote a book about it, I I worked very hard to get as much declassified. So fantastic papers like my father's trips to satellites of the outer planets were classified all these years, could finally be declassified. There really was nothing threatening in those papers other than that they, you, you could sort of reverse engineer from reading these papers how how small they were able to make these bombs, which which is still a classified fact. But politically, because because it was secret, you could you could never go to the public for support. One time, uh, Ted Taylor was on a flight back from Washington D.C. to uh, um, California, and and he must have had a couple of martinis or something. But he got up and. Addressed the, everybody in the airplane and explained the project and said, well, "You know, would you give a dollar a year to support this?" And of course, everybody clapped and said yes, but they never had that chance. Yeah, that's quite quite
0: amazing that we were so close to at least a theoretical model to go to the outer parts of the solar system. We maybe there's something else. I don't know how this happened. And I've been talking about the big stagnation, Peter Fields' team, quite a bit that we have this low productivity growth since the 70s, lower than what we thought it would be, let's put it this way, and a lot of things that we thought would easily be available in 2020 are just not like the flying cocks, right? Or like vehicles we can cheaply go to Mars or to outer space. Um, Do you have a theory, and you've done so much research about history, why we kind of see this breakdown of productivity growth? Is it that we lowered expectations as humans? Is it it maybe anthropology? Is it that we reached a limit of growth? Um, a lot of people say they're rare technologies and they just came to an end of their life cycle and we haven't replaced them yet. But there seems to be nobody has a really good handle on why we have this A, lower productivity growth and B, it seems like the, the things, the imaginations of, of us humans, especially for me being a science fiction fan um, all over my life. It seems like we've really driven this back and said, mm, you know, with the internet and a couple of Facebook posts—that's enough. What we aspire to. Why did that happen since the 70s? Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I can sort of give you two very different approaches to answering that. One, one is a is you know it's the sort of cynical answer that well we're we're not being productive because because the. the you know great minds of our generations are are wasting their time on their iPhones and and, uh, and playing playing video games and, and that, but that's not really true i think the the more technical answer is a metric it, it's a measurement problem that we just uh, in terms of economics we measure productivity in dollars right and and that's just the way it's always been the gross national product is the product of the country in dollars if if you measure productivity if you if you choose a metric a different metric say say what if you choose a metric that's transistors not dollars Then, of course we've been insanely productive in you know in producing transistors we t- they're just getting so cheap so it, you know so like when like when i when i was a child it was a major investment for a family to you know to have one color television I mean, a color tel- television was a center of the home it was a big thing Whereas now, of course, you know every kid has several color televisions. They haven't got one in their pocket, yeah. so it, it's, a, it's a problem that we. I think it's actually something we need to fix as a as a, as a global economy. It's sort of this metric problem of that we only measure productivity in, in, in dollars. But in the in the creativity sense, the sort of third answer is yes. We we you know we're not developing. Uh, you know, really new energy sources and things like that that drove the, the leaps in productivity into the, you know, industrial revolution the first time or the nuclear age or something. But, but you know, maybe we don't need to, but the, and, the, and then the fourth problem is that we believe uh, there's too much propaganda and we believe it. I mean, we're really being fed a lot of PR about, you know, going to Mars and things like that that just, just technically uh, are very, very, very hard to do with chemical energy. Yeah, it seems
0: like when we when we look at things that are important to spacefaring like the, the simple the cost of energy per kilowatt hour right or the the basically the launch cost we want to get one ton somewhere near in some orbit they haven't really moved much since what the 50s 40s maybe there's still like Nazi technology you
1: could you, could yeah, say, you, uh, you can but
0: the the paradigm hasn't changed and that seems to be something we as a species don't really want anymore like we feel like this is this is interesting you read about it in science fiction, but we are not really going towards that goal. Uh, do you feel that's natural? We Just as a, as a humanity, we have decided is not as important? Or well, it is it something where we, we, we run against the wall?
1: Yeah, we're not being realistic about you know. You can only do so much with hydrogen and oxygen, which are our two, two best chemical rocket fuels. And we, we, we got to that limit 50 years ago when we went to the moon, and, and all we can do is sort of repeat that unless we... Must we do something different? And uh, you know, my my father Freeman, before he died, he wrote a foreword to it. It was going to be a new edition of the book about Project Orion, and in that he very directly addresses the question: of, "Is this something we should do now? Or should we do it again?" And he, you know, he says clearly, "No. There's better ways to do space travel than than exploding nuclear bombs." But that doesn't mean the only way to do it is chemical rockets. Yeah, when you when you look back
0: into all that research that you did about the the uh, the history of technology and specific technologies, what kind of surprised you the most when you started out in your 20s and started doing that research and started learning more about it? What was the fact that you felt like, "Whoa, I never really expected that, but either as a prediction or as a paradigm or as an axiom
1: that you didn't expect? No, I was I just was always surprised by by the individual stories which is which is what I do. I mean I, I find individual people and talk to them or read if they're alive I talk to them if they're dead I read their papers and, and people were so creative and of course facing such obstacles in the sense of of having ideas that were not taken seriously or something it just kept person and finally somebody has the idea and it it moves moves forward, but technology is, you know, is very much driven by by individuals. Now there's a argument. There's always a debate in sort of the field of history. You know, is it is it is it driven by the generals or is it driven by the, uh, you know, by the armies, by the soldiers? And it's it's a mix of both. But but for me, the interesting thing was was finding the stories of of, of, of how things. Actually happened, and how, and how you know, improvised so much. I mean, particularly the development of this first computer of von Neumann's that, that's now been the archetype for everything that followed. I mean, the guys who actually built it and, and women, um, you know, they had to build their own workbenches, and wire their own electrical outlets, and just start from zero. The same, same yeah,
0: girl. One of your books really goes into specifics, uh, but the first computer, write about Turing and von Neumann. How much did these guys know what they were up to? How much did they know that they are creating intelligent machines at some point if this continues um, on a certain trajectory?
1: They they had a very clear idea of that. I mean, they 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 knew exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. They they fully knew it would you know, the world would never be the same. Now they could not foresee that these things they built would be some, would become so cheap. I mean, know that's what they failed to see, that you, that you would, uh, you know, have, that the entire computing power of Los Alamos would, you know, would now cost, you know, half a cent or something. And that was just un, unfathomable at the time. But, but they clearly knew that this, that these digital codes were going, were going to change everything.
0: I'm always curious, we, we now have ex- we extrapolate what comes out of Moore's Law, and we, we talk about records for a lot in this podcast, who has made this really famous, the age of the intelligent machines and his predictions of what happens when we keep doubling. Is there someone who, and I think it's an observation, right, Moore's Law, is there someone who predicted it way before it started, um, is, is there, or is, was, it, was it fully and transparent in the early days of building semiconductors and transistors?
1: well with i mean moore's law started when once you had integrated circuits, so before and and moore was you know was very quick to see that but not not in advance sort of so sort of, sort of, he's you know he kind of uh, you know explained moore's law of the world in the ni- in the early 1960s it, it had kind of started earlier but i mean the person who who did sort of see it and of course, many people probably saw it, but didn't say anything about it. But the person who, who lectured about it was Richard Feynman, you know, gave a very clear, beautiful lecture in the, in the late 1950s about how once you have machines that can build smaller machines, it's sort of going to be game over because smaller machines will build smaller machines that will build smaller machines. And if they're smaller, what he knew as a physicist was if they're smaller, they're going to be cheaper and they're going to be faster. That's the key thing. Smaller computers are faster. So he saw that. That would definitely. Do you
0: think if we are still on this trajectory, and you say Richard Feynman knew what he was was talking about at that early stage, do you think we will just keep going, and the intelligent machines will really have not a lot of use for humanity, so to speak, and that we are in that? Um, there's a lot of fear there that we reach this with AI or we reach it with the next generation of technology, whatever we want to call it. But there's a moment with our thinking power doesn't really make a dent anymore because it's so tiny compared to what machines are able to.
1: Yes, that's a that's a big subject. I mean, that that's what this latest story I wrote, Analogia, is is kind of about that question of what's yeah. what's the difference between uh, you know human minds and computers, and where are we seeing that wrong? I mean, it's so so. Yes, I sort of answered and like. Like we said earlier, I and mean, we were talking about what we would talk about, that, that you can see that either way. You can you can say, Oh, it's it's sort of game over for people, or you can say, it's just beginning. We're gonna we're gonna have very new kinds of mind in the world. Uh, that's nothing new to us. What's interesting is that we that's sort of the the world we grew up in as a species. I mean we we evolved over millions of years to become human beings. And most of that time, we lived in a world where where we were, were surrounded by intelligence we didn't understand. Uh, you know, everything was animated by by spirits and things like that. And so we're, we're actually, I think, quite comfortable with that, that. And if we end up back in that world where where we've created things we don't understand. I don't think it's going to make us that, The people who say, oh, that's going to be the end of the world and it's going to be a terrible thing. I don't think it's necessarily that. It's not provably bad. I mean, it, it may, may bring us back to a world we actually are quite comfortable with. Do you think,
0: and this is maybe related to another question, I know there's a big questions, but we, we, for some reason, are in this, this art of human development where we are really interested in developing technology. And that's for the, especially for the last two thousand years. Maybe you can extend it for the ten thousand years. It's hard to pinpoint it, right? But there seems to be a long time in human civilization when the the particular interest in technology wasn't that high. A lot we had decent lives, or we had shorter lifespans. But it seems people were relatively happy, from what we know. Obviously, we can get that wrong. Correct me if that is wrong. But. For some reason, we've been getting so focused on technology. And I feel this is a subset of human population. There's still people in Papua New Guinea that live like 50,000 years ago, and they're happy, right? They, they probably don't really want to become part of our society immediately, maybe after some convincing persuasion. But they live happy in their own way, and so it is true for, for tribes in Africa like Angola. Why do you think we've become so obsessed with technology?
1: and What, what,
0: what is the trade that has taken
1: off? Well, in a, in a very real sense, the technology has sort of a life of its own, where it, it drives itself. I mean, you, you build computers that build more computers, or you, you build machine tools that build more tools. That it's going to take off. And of course, it's driven by war and money. I mean, the, the fact that technology plays such a role. The, the, Now we sort of take it for granted, but if you if you can invent a new technology, it will create a lot of wealth. And, and likewise, you know, humans have always been in conflict, and you know at a certain point the, the, the conflicts became defined by by the technology. You know, you can have different kinds of bows and arrows, but they're all bows and arrows, it's not going to make that huge a difference. But then you invent, you invent gunpowder, it, it you know, changes things completely. So when, I,
0: when I'm pushing you for a particular point here, um, I'm, I'm not serious with this, but you'd say that conflict and the conflict between individuals right, or between human tribes is a necessary precursor. This competition is a precursor for technology development. But we must have had that for a long time, right why did it suddenly take off and there is this i'd say the Old testament tribe, but it's bigger than that by now way bigger um that suddenly scaled up technology at, into something that that seems to be there just you know the wetware the bootloader for for intelligent machines before we had technology like fire, but you know we're far off from fire taking over as a as a conscious being and now we're pretty close to AI that seems to be able to do that
1: yeah, I don't i mean that's a question we 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 really don't know the answer to. I mean, there is something very different that happened. I mean, we each culture sees it their own way. I mean, we, as I'm speaking as American, Canadian, British, you know, we, we see it as the Industrial Revolution, which which happened in England. Uh, in in in, the, in Asia, they, they would place it differently. But but we had these similar sort of almost phase changes where where suddenly you had new new levels of uh, technology. And I mean, the key thing is when machines start building other machines, that's that's sort of what sets the, the real chain reaction. Yeah. And, and Do you have
0: a timeline for this moment where you feel like machine intelligence as a whole or maybe individual machines will be far beyond at least a good le- at the level of the smartest human that we can muster? Do you think it's a 100 years, a 1000 years away from that?
1: Well, you can argue you know, you can make one a good argument that it's happened already that the, which is what, you know, when I wrote that book, Darwin among the machines, that's what I was arguing was that the entire network of, of all the computers in the world was, was already, you know, the modern word for it would be super intelligent. Um, But I don't, I, I firmly don't believe in discrete AI in the sense that, 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 you know, we're being sort of marketed AI as a product and, and that I think is is again it's just marketing it's not it's not real'm I'm, I'm much more interested in, in wild AI artificial intelligence that, e- that evolves on its own in the wild not not something that is domesticated and, and sort of kept in a box and and that I just don't think is ever going to happen I don't think we're, I don't think we are going to build I think you can you can Sort of, almost, mathematically prove that you you, know, you can't build a computer in a box that has human intelligence. They're just completely different things. Humans are not. The human brain is not a computer. It's it's in no way like a computer. Um, it's it can you know it can do things that that appear intelligent, but that's that's not being intelligent.
0: Yeah, David Orban gave me a timeline, because he's plugged into the Thiel um, Foundation, but he also does his own research, obviously. He said, you know, the timeline that people are looking at right now um, is 2038, relatively specific is Singularity. And what happens is that we have, for $1,000, a million brains, AI brains, that have the same computing power. That doesn't, seem, doesn't mean the same intelligence or the same consciousness, but the same computing power than the one million humans. And if that's true that's that's pretty crazy i mean just i mean we can put these narrow ais into whatever problem solving we want to right
1: that's, that's right but, leverage. but you said if it's true of course i don't believe it is true I, i'm, I'm yeah. firmly of the side that it's not it's not happening but the computing power
0: goes that way right i don't know if we,
1: right we but compute com- com- to the human computing power is not intelligence it's a, it's a different different thing human brain works in a very different way i, I heard ray kurtz file right at the beginning with like 1980 and they give a talk in Los Angeles and he said you know he was giving his standard talk at that time that if if if, if you give me a billion transistors i will give you human level intelligence and then a, then a very quiet hungarian voice came from the back of the room said you know, professor Kurzweil, if, if you, you you can have a billion transistors, but we're we're gonna use uh, half a billion of them for the operating system and your machine still won't be intelligent. That, that's that's the flaw. I mean you just uh, how so much do I, we have now? Do, do you know how much is in a typical iPhone? Oh, billion billions and billions and billions. way more than Kurtzfile wanted and, and right. you know it's it's just not it's it's it's, it's, it's I think it's just a, a very flawed uh reasoning and the and the you know the the pioneers at the beginning sort of felt the same way i mean they knew that that wasn't the path to to real intelligence but, but you know we we'll, we we'll, we're getting there but we're sort of doing it by accident not not deliberately yeah when you look at gpt3 and that's a very current
0: example it's it, it had, it's far from being intelligent, obviously, it's a statistical analysis. Um, and it, it, it's basically a word counting tool. But what was kind of amazing, even to the people who, who, who worked on it is, it produced interesting results in very different areas. It's far from being correct all the time, makes a lot of mistakes. But it could not just was good at translating, which was where the original model came from, but it was also good at writing HTML code. It was really good at writing poems. It was writing good at essays. So something they never thought would happen with this particular model. And they basically said, you know, what it really lacks is error correction and user, there needs to be an intelligence that tells the the model, okay, you're wrong at these points and you need to either change the model or you need to just make no predictions because you don't know. But once you have this, all this user feedback, so this combination, as you said earlier, we already have the supercomputing because we're all connected. So that all the humans and the internet would error correct what GPT-3 puts out there. So run it through this filter. He said, you know, GPT-5, there's a real chance it, looks, chance. it looks like a conscious being to someone on the other side because it knows so much from humanity, all statistical analysis. It doesn't know the how and, and why, but it, it appears to everyone else on the other side like it is an intelligent machine.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's that's that path is entirely you know productive i mean the the path of just uh you know just these very large networks that that operate statistically i mean that's that's the path to intelligence that's how that's how we got there the first time but there the flaw is in believing that there's some algorithm that's going to going to make it work It's, it's it's not going to be algorithmic do you think that machines at some point will require
0: morality some ethics code
1: um again that people have been thinking about that for a long time the the alan turings sort of key colleague in world war 2 doing you know doing the what we now would call bayesian statistics on the german messages was was irving jack good who lived You know, Turing died tragically very young, but but Irving Good came to America and lived a long life. So he's sort of our link to what Turing was really thinking. And he wrote a a beautiful paper in 1981 on on ethical machines, on machine ethics that was strangely, it was published, but the publisher took out all the interesting stuff. He published the the uninteresting stuff and took out the, but he he gave me the, you know, the uncorrected uh, manuscript and it's, it's just beautiful. I mean, he because he, he makes a very strong case that, that you know machines are, you know, we worry so much about the the immorality of machines, but they're they're just as likely to be more ethical than 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 people. I mean, so, so this argument that oh we got to be afraid of, of unethical machines it's not it's not true. The machines could be more ethical. Um, people have not don't have a very good track record for being being ethical and moral. So machines could do better but they the problem really is, is is of course the thing that we worry about is machines in the hands of unethical people that's that's the thing to be afraid of
0: yeah I have the same suspicion that if we if we evolved with a sense of ethics and morality and have refined that over many thousand years now um, it seemed to be a tool that helped us survive it seemed to help us make better decisions which is yes. what I think it living is all about. And if machines reach a similar level, they they got to have the same problem. So they're they going to use our solutions first. Maybe they call up with better ones, right? But I think just murdering everything around you because you're a warlord or you're a crazy soci- sociopath, it's not something that scales in the end because you need other people. So that we, we figured out that, you know, a healthy dose of competition, but mostly collaboration is what seems to create yeah. the best, best results in the end, right? And these huge hive, um of societies that we live now that i think even 100 years nobody could forecast of that, that many people and it seems to be so easy to sustain us most of the time at least
1: yes and that's exactly where where jack good ends up in this paper he he, he says that the machines will will have to develop sort of ethics based on bayesian statistics and, and he, he's right i mean i think that paper was hugely prophetic and, and i don't know why you know because it was written before the internet uh, so it doesn't exist yeah. in the, in the sort of <laughs> mis- mis- machine if you search for machine ethics you won't find it but, but he was way way ahead and it's sort of it really is the voice of Turing I mean, if Turing could speak to us he he's speaking to us through Jack Good because because Turing felt strongly the same way that, that of course of course he knew personally in a, in a very deep sense how, how unethical uh, people could be he was so mistreated so, so the idea that machines might be more ethical I think was was attractive to
0: him. Yeah, a lot of people say that we now elevate technology as this new religion. So it's our new God. And when you when you talk to a lot of scientists, when you talk about the Big Bang, there is something religious, but they don't want to associate it with God. They're really afraid of talking about anywhere about God. And when God appears, a religious symbol appears in a white paper, then they basically get laughed out of the room. Why do you think has, have become so far away from... And I know research, a lot of researchers, a lot of those, those, um, those, those geniuses we just talked about, they were at the the end of this phase where religion was enormously important for people in science and were really motivated in the early 20th century, a lot of the the, the, uh, the best scientists we've had. And now it seems to be the antithesis. Why do you think that happened? Do you think that's a good thing?
1: No, I think it's, it's extremely harmful. I mean, the, 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 many of our greatest advances, the, the one that... The, again people just fail to realize is that you know John Ambrose Fleming who gave us the vacuum tube in its modern form I mean, he was deeply religious he was he, he actually founded a, an organization that still exists that was anti-darwinian he thought he thought darwin was you know was an enemy of religion and, and so many of our greatest technological advances were, were pushed by deeply religious so this idea that you need to somehow be You know that religion and science are are contradictory. I don't. I don't see any evidence for it. Again, my father was religious, not in a um, you know he said so. Where he put it was not in a practicing way, but but he uh, that that bothered him. Uh, And I think we again we may come around. you, know, you don't know where we're going to end up. I mean, the the, the jury is still out on, on on what the relationship between religion and science will, will end up being.
0: Yeah. Well, we're definitely in a trend. We're in a trend. I feel like it's maybe coming to an end where we have this, this... You're not allowed to talk about God at all. And now it kind of seems to shift the way there's a lot of younger people who are suddenly really interested in, in religion. They see the utility of religion and they see... I mean, one thing that, that I see in a daily basis, I live here in San Francisco, as more you move away from being, and I, I had an interesting this, discussion with Blaze about that, as further you move away from religion, as less likely you have children. So most people just don't even consider having children, right? It's not even something they say, no, unfortunately, I, I can't have children. They just they 100% know when they're 19 that we're going to have children. It's never going to happen for me. I don't want divorced parents. I'm not sure if this is the the way to survive, right? So I mean, there is something interesting about competition and collaboration, but if a society that really hates on kids, so to speak. Um, I don't know if this is a good chance of survival, and this is what happened in mostly in the science community, right so well, in it's, something strange.
1: It's what happened to the shakers i mean the, the shakers were a were a reasonably viable American religion that that didn't didn't believe in having children, and of course the Shakers um, survive. You know, they, they barely survived. So. I
0: have to read about them. The Shakers, was, uh, there, in the nineteenth century. 20th. Yeah,
1: there's actually actually a few miles north of where I live here in Bellingham. There actually is a Shaker church on, on our Indian reserve. I mean, it, it, the, the yeah. Shaker church has survived in certain pockets, but but uh, I don't know much about it. But I know that it, it, you know, the fact that they didn't believe in having children was of course, it's not, you know, of course, the Catholic Church has done very well. Yeah. Well, it's very <laughs>
0: counterintuitive on a lot of levels, but, you know, I, I, I feel like this, I bring some persuasion to the table, not that anyone listens to me, but <laughs> I'm trying, at least. Um. I'm really, really amazed. I don't know if you looked into this, how the Amish people handle this. They seem to be stuck in an 18th century, 19th century mindset, but they easily interact with the 21st century, but they kind of know where their borders are. This is amazing to me. Like, even the children, the young children, at some point, they maybe have Facebook, but they don't have it when they are at home, right? So, I don't know how they handle this divergence between, okay, there's a new technology, but we don't adopt the morals that this new technology seemingly gives us. Um, I don't know. Where they really, really draw the line, I think this is quite amazing to see.
1: Yeah, they're very effective. I, I was interviewing someone on a completely unrelated subject, and it turned out they they had some old equipment, and they they needed fifty cycle power, and in America ooh, everything is sixty cycle power, and. And they had to run. This was scientific equipment. They, they needed fifty-cycle power. This was before the age. Sort of now, you could just solid-state dial up your own fifty-cycle power. I guess, but the, with a programmable power supply. But anyway, their workaround was they put this equipment in the back of a pickup truck and went out to Pennsylvania, where the Amish people still have. They you know they're not against, They use electricity for certain things. I'm not sure what it is, but they but they generate their own. Electricity and it's 50 cycle. So they just took this equipment out in the pickup truck and asked if they could have some 50 cycle power. And Amherst said fine. So that, that, that that's also sort of a Neil Stevenson novel where the you know the, the people living in these pockets of sort of anti-created technology are, are those are the people who you know in the end will probably save us because they they've got the last working whatever it is that we need.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of talk that we end up being very vulnerable in this this monoculture, right? So we're all part of this hive. We be, when we see this now, people are really worried about a new virus who's very worrisome. But on the other hand, do we have zero trust in our immune system? Seemingly, at least, we have zero trust in, um, in a way to mitigate it, which we kind of did, we kind of not did. We, we, that can be argued about. But there seems to be the error on the side of, prevention and like, we, we literally, without any resistance or hesit- hesitation, everyone here in San Francisco cloudified themselves, right? So they, they gave up their real life in a heartbeat. It's like, it's this does not has no worthwhile value to them. They were ready to give up their, their real life and go fully cloud within the matter of month. And there was no, we, we didn't only wanna talk about resistance, they felt like this, we would have to done this anyways, maybe in five or 10 years, and we would become these gray little um, aliens. But now we just do it a couple of years earlier. That seemed to be, when, when when I talk to people here, that seems to be the consensus, which was really shocking to me.
1: Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, this past year is just it's phenomenal what the the sort of shifts that the people were freely willing to make, or in my case, happy to make. I'm, I'm, I love this new... Yeah. You know, the way the world is now is fine with me, but... But we, we, yeah, we, it, it shows how adaptable we are. I mean, it's a great example of how, which is always you know in the case of wars and stuff, you wonder well, how did how did people adapt so quickly? How did how did London keep functioning while being bombed? Well, pe- people are very very adaptable.
0: Yeah, I was just reading about Vincent Churchill, and he was involved in both wars, both World War One and World War Two, and. I was always under this impression, idiotically probably, that he was bunkered down and he he, he hunkered out in, in, in a couple of places in London, hiding from the bombs. But actually, he he went on voyages to the U.S. I every mean, couple of months, and despite the u boats it seemed to never be a problem. So there was a lot of normal life, despite the tragedy that was going on in Europe. So that was really surprising to me.
1: Yeah, people were willing to take that risk, and it was sort of the... the... Best defense against, you know, against giving in was to, to just keep trying to live as normal as possible. Yeah.
0: When you think back, that's always a question I've been pondering here on the podcast, and you, you must have come across a lot of evidence for it or against it. Um, for me, and I think we touched on that a little bit earlier. I always felt there is a sense of you got to innovate. You got to become more productive, or you're eventually going to die. And there is this idea that you know people from Europe went everywhere to colonize the place, good or bad intentions. Let's assume for now they were not all terrible intentions. Certainly they were involved too, but they wanted to. You know they were ready for an adventure. They were themselves maybe oppressed in their home country, so they went out and started something new. They found people they thought were Indians, um, and. What, what most of the time happened is that uh, there were diseases spread. Um, so there was a lot of um, tragic events that, that evolved. But what I'm trying to find out is when we think about these tragic, sometimes really tragic world events, there seems to be some element of, of innovation, of, of forward thinking involved. And without that, it doesn't really matter. If, if you don't bring this to, to life within your society, then you're kind of toast. I mean, you can maybe survive in a little jungle when you when you get lucky on an island like Papua New Guinea, but generally, someone will come by and maybe unintentionally, because you 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 don't matter so much, or you're not being recognized as a real power, you're in real trouble.
1: Yes, I mean that's the story of North America. In the, yeah. the Last you know, very short time, completely changed. We had we had a very successful effective civilization here. And you know, then again it's the interesting question is where, where we end up in the future, how much how much of that survives?
0: I wonder if if we are like in a post conflict society, have we do you think we're wise enough and we are we are advanced enough to to call this post conflict? I mean we didn't have a ton of huge conflicts in the last seventy years, luckily enough.
1: Yes, that's again you have a big argument. I mean, you you have the Steven Pinker side that says oh things are really getting better. And yeah. Look at the curves but the, but you you just don't know. I think it's premature. To, you know, we, we we could have a lot of conflict in, in a very short time. It's um yeah, you know, we, we we still build enormous amounts of weapons They they tend to get used sooner or later.
0: A lot of people say that the next conflict will be all robots. So I don't, I don't know where I read this, but there was a forecast of where the default lines will be in the next conflict, and they seem to be pretty accurate. It was definitely China, there was Turkey, Iran, Russia, and they would be on one side, and on the other side would be the free world, um, but mostly the US, um, Europe not so much. They kind of want to stay neutral. It was written in the uh, late 80s, I think. And the yeah, forecast was that the war would be all robots in uh, Poland or on these fault lines, usually Ukraine, you know, the old fault lines, but it wouldn't be fought with a lot of human life loss, at least not the, what we've seen in the 1940s, for instance.
1: Yes. I mean, definitely warfare is, is heading to robots, whether that means less life loss, I don't know. That was the argument for guns. And, you know, all yeah. weapons are always argued that, well, they're going to kill less people, but yeah. But what's interesting is that now it's socially acceptable. I mean, it, you know, Edward Teller, the sort of the bad guy in the hydrogen bomb story, maybe a little unjustly, but he he pushed very hard. He, we we know Edward Teller is having pushed for the hydrogen bomb, but but in the after the hydrogen bomb in the sixties and seventies, he was pushing very hard for for drone warfare for for you know why do we put pilots and airplanes that are unnecessary. And the Air Force was just absolutely resistant to that. I mean, the idea that you you have an Air Force without pilots was unthinkable. And now here we are. I mean, now the Air Force is is very accepting of of keeping the pilots on the ground. And uh, and and yes, the, the, the you know we're building, putting much more creative thought into into drone weapons than than piloted weapons and, and that you know it's certainly a good thing for pilots whether it's good for everybody else we don't know but, but it's, it seems
0: like if we can isolate ourselves from the misery we create then we will create more misery right because we don't see the results
1: immediately. yes that's that's and and you you just make enemies that way I mean has we've not been doing the drone warfare thing very very intelligently but but we're certainly moving that way
0: one thing that a lot of people find a lovely thought experiment and maybe that's all there is is we we see this world and we we see the world is changing with technology and it seems to be something that that's as we talked about earlier, might be soon more intelligent than us maybe it won't happen the way we envision, but there could be there's a strong chance that it will happen. A lot of people think about. If we live in the simulation, and then the question obviously is, is the simulation something that was created by someone, by a creator, or is it a simulation that's completely random? So there's a lot of sub questions. Oh, well, how do you feel about these these questions or that particular question? And how did people that you study, like Feynman and Neumann, think about that?
1: Well, I th- I think the simulation hypothesis is is f- far, I mean, I think the singularity hypothesis is silly and the um, the simulation in physics, there's an expression, There's actually, someone who has a whole, whole website, that's the title, but not even wrong. Like, like in physics, people are always proposing wrong ideas, and then there's ideas that are so out to lunch. They're not even wrong, and I think that the simulation hypothesis is just—if you do the math in any kind of any way, it just—it just doesn't work. And and I think, but I don't know. We don't know what von Neumann or Turing would have thought. But I think they would have just done the arithmetic and said, no, that's that's completely impossible. You can't. You just—it just doesn't. Yeah, you know, it doesn't close. It's it's not an argument that that has any closure to it. It's it. And it's—I mean—in a way, it's religion. It's, you know, sort of belief, b- belief in res- resurrection We always want to believe in that. It's, it's another way of believing in that. But it's—I uh, think—provably fictitious. I mean, it's, it's based on these extremely flawed arguments. That—that that, you know, if you have a certain number of—that the brain can be uh, simulated with a certain number of transistors. It's just—it it can't i mean um and then again von neumann was very explicit about that i, I call that von neumann's law but he didn't call it that but that that, that sort of the definition of a, of an organism is that it constitutes its own simplest behavioral description there's there is no way to uh, even a very 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 simple organism one living cell or something there's, there's no way to describe its behavior that is not Vastly more complicated than the, than the organism itself, and, and that's why you can't have you can't have a simulation. Any any you know whatever the simulation is running on will will be just astronomically impossibly more complicated than the, the thing itself. So you it, it, you can't do it. It's just not it's not possible in the, in the, you know laws of the universe as we know it.
0: Well, when you, when you think about video game, I think a lot of people it's simply say, well, we, we, we have a civilization, they make PlayStations, we make PlayStations, right? So, And we use PlayStations for a certain purpose. It doesn't have to be as exact as the real world, but it helps us create lots of different outcomes. It gives us skills, um, so there's real um, utility to all kinds of simulations that, that we feel, right? Our brain, basically, abstract thinking is a simulation of, real, of the real world experience. So we can simulate hunting that animal. We don't get killed 100%. Or ninety nine percent of the time, but uh, we we actually get only killed in our minds, So and so is video games, and the I think the argument is fascinating that any civilization will go to this high abstract abstraction level. So at some point you will basically just be simulate an Earth, or when we go to Mars, we'll maybe simulate an Earth. So we'll find out how would Earth society flourish there, and then we learn from it in computer games, right? And then we are not one hundred percent right, but we get closer to the truth. And I think at some point, um, someone will come up and say, oh, let's do a solar system. Um, at some point, someone will say, oh, let's do a Milky Way. And then we are at the universe level. So someone must have done this, no? Don't you don't No, do but I
1: mean, you can, you, all the computers in the world today c- couldn't even simulate an earthworm. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't <laughs> add, <it> doesn't add <laughs> up. Yes, but
0: that's just, just, just the exponent that we switch around, right?
1: no it's not it's beyond that i mean that's that's where the not even wrong comes in it's just it's just not uh you know and a a physicist or a mathematician would look at it and and, you know would just just tell you that that no you cannot i mean again i'm I'm not a mathematician but i know enough mathematics to know that, that, that you know these questions these are deep questions in logic and and you know foundations of mathematics is sort of what what you get with the next level of abstraction—that's actually what Turing was working on b- b- before he died. He called it s- systems of logic, but you know, systems of logic that that can create a level outside the system that can do that kind of thing. But you still you, you don't get to where you're going to, you know, simulate um, even a mouse or a frog or, or an ant, let alone yeah. You know a group of people or, or your your grandmother you know it's just it's just not going to happen i i'd say i'm maybe i maybe i will be proven wrong but i don't, I don't, I don't,
0: I don't i'm curious it. what people will say in a hundred years from now they will laugh about us either way right so either we were too optimistic or we we're too pessimistic yes. one of these things will be wrong i think that's that's the trouble with these predictions it's hard to get the time frame scale yeah. Right. yeah
1: my um, my, you, my daughter who lived with me here in this tavern for a few years uh used to sit in here and i mean right at this table where i'm sitting in an old she had a, you know an early mac and she would play sim city which was a simulation game and, you know she was in eighth grade or whatever and, and absolutely loved it but i mean it, but it you know it was so primitive it's not
0: Talking a lot about city planning. A lot, yeah. (laughs) uh, How much I know about city planning.
1: Yeah, the strange thing was, I I used to go up to city council meetings, you know, planning council meetings, and and they were using way more, my daughter was using more powerful tools than they were.
0: Yeah.
1: They were planning our real city and spending our tax money with worse, much less information that you would get with SimCity.
0: I think public administration has a lot to learn from simulation games. Um, yes. They're, they're finally getting that, there, you know, the military has fully embraced it, but I think public administration will get that
1: too. Right. So and that that's where it is effective and valuable and useful, not yeah. for resurrecting your, your, <laughs> your, your, your dead ancestors. Yeah.
0: In one of your books, you, you make the claim and I found that really interesting, correct me if I got it wrong, is that basically modern AI or the, the idea of modern AI started with Leibniz um, back in Germany um, working for Catherine the Great. Um, is that true?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, Leibniz was before Catherine the Great, so it was Peter the Great. Leib- Leibniz right. became, he just, he had this, you know, now we would call it a bromance. I mean, Leibniz, like, Met Peter the Great and was, was, fell in love with him. I mean, he just loved this this Russian prince who had all this power. And, and he, he, you know, it was sort of this great unrequited love affair where where Leibniz, you know, fell in love with Peter the Great, but Peter the Great didn't 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 really go for. Leibniz's idea is accept the idea of going to North, America, sending an expedition to North America. Leibniz or Peter the Great went for that in a big way, and then, then Catherine the Great took that over. But, but no, Leibniz wanted to convince, tried to convince Peter the Great to sort of build a network of digital computers and take over the world. And he was way, way prophetically ahead. So yeah, I think in a, in a way, you know, Leibniz believed that this. It's somewhat like the simulation hypothesis that if you, if you sort of built enough logical machines, you could run the entire world. You know, human society could be operated in a completely logical way. And then, then everything would work. That You know, which some people still dream of and believe in. China being you know, the current example. So. Do you think that sounds kind of like the, the
0: modern science, right? Which Which kind of seems to have a logical answer, like a Mr. Spock answer on pretty much any topic out there. But it doesn't seem to wipe so well with, say, the 90% of America. This seems to be a and, and question for the intelligentsia that seems to answer relatively easily. Complicated questions by running back to a logical algorithm. But the reality is often quite different. I think it's something that the Greeks already discovered, right? They yes. had it all worked out. The philosopher king knew what to do. There was no laws needed. He was basically godlike. The gods were slightly different, but what we would say today in an Old Testament way, he would be like a god. But then the serpentus went to, to, I think, it was it Sicily, and he got rejected, and he actually became a slave there because nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. And he was really surprised by this. I think he was really honest at that moment. He was like, "Well, if I go there," then I'm going to solve this. And then what the, the, the antagonist there said, well, for him, because he knows, he, he knows the real truth of the universe, so to speak, being a slave shouldn't matter to his outcome and to his personal life. And you know that you can see how these, these two ideologies collide. On one hand, that there is this algorithm that drives us, like the European Union, who things, the whole European Union and the laws of algorithm. And we shouldn't even bother with people. We should basically abandon democracy and just do it right. And then there's a more American heartland approach where, where people come in and say, well, in the end, the final decision must be always a human decision. Otherwise, even if we're wrong, we eventually always get it right. Where do you stand on that, Dwight? What do you think is right there?
1: Ah, yeah, there. I mean, the real world is so messy and complicated and illogical. That's That's the problem that, that people, you can to make the most logical arguments and people will behave in completely illogical ways and somehow the, the you know I th- personally I think it's it's kind of a good thing that that, that you know the fact that everything is not going to run logically is what but but that's that's my view as sort of as a lover of the you know the unspoiled wilderness and so on that, that I think it's it's what saves us as Sort of as a human species, that we're not completely, completely logical. I think it would be it would be sort of a very dull world if everything were were perfectly run. But but that's end, been the endless argument back and forth between the people who want to run things. You know, they want the school to run according to all the rules, and then there's the kids who just are going to break the rules. I'm on the side of the kids who break the rules.
0: See, there seems to be some, some, and you, you lived in, in the nature for a long time. You said you lived in a treehouse for quite some time. There seems to be this impression that there is a there is a real harmony in nature. It's like a it's a it's a complete picture. It's it doesn't need much of an improvement. Logic doesn't need to go around and fix the birds. It's it's kind of all. It has self configured to a state of equilibrium that doesn't need any improvement. But when we look at Society. I don't think anyone would ever say that. Uh, on either side of the divide, everyone thinks it's completely broken. It needs to be fixed, and it's the opposite of what the other side, or if there's more sides, what what my political antagonist says right now. We never seem to have that issue with nature. We seem to be it's it's like the the level where we all started from.
1: Yes, I mean it's sort of the the, the phrase is you know to, to be in a state of nature means sort of a state of equilibrium, and that you know that's not entirely true. It was it was. Lots of disequilibrium in nature, but it it is true that you know if you climb up the top of a tree, it's it's a different world, and it's it's very peaceful in its in its own way. But but it's not you know it it tends to be I think be over romanticized. But and I and I didn't live in a tree. Now if you tell people you lived in a tree, now they think you were trying to save the rainforest or something like that. I just lived in a tree because it was you know it a place to live for free without paying rent it's a great place to build a house but i it, it, it wasn't trying to save the forest
0: well people describe the time of your life as being as far away from your father as possible i don't i have no idea if that's true but they kind of they keep into account that you had this massive amount of fame that your father enjoyed at some point and then um also his it's probably extremely hard to to define yourself if you have such successful parents. You also said earlier your mother was very successful. Um, that must be really hard to just get get off a, a jumping board.
1: Yes, you don't want to, you know, be in their shadow. So, you know, I knew I'd, I. Mean, there was no way I could ever, even if I wanted to be a physicist, it would it would have been tragic. You know? Like people would say, well, even if I was a good physicist, people would say, well, he, you know, George is good, but he's nothing like uh, Freeman. You know? So, 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 yeah, I I became a boat builder to just to avoid that question entirely. And so I was, you know, that's partly true. I mean, I did I did move to Vancouver, Canada, but that's because I had an older sister who, who moved there and got married, and I as a, came there as a seventeen-year-old and just loved it. The fact that. It was such a fair and equitable country in a way that, that you know that, that it was sort of lost in America at that time. So I felt very, very welcomed in Canada and part of the, you know, you just go, go to a beer parlor on some island and have deep philosophical conversations with people who you know made their living fishing and logging. And I loved it. it, was, it was absolutely, so in that sense, it was true. It was as far from academia as I could get.
0: I always ponder, we, we talk about privilege a lot, right? And that has become, a, had gotten a political meaning. But if I think about privilege in the sense of you your parents can were able to show you a world that is very difficult for, for others to get in at all, even after 30, 40 years of their career, but you basically, that was your starting point. So I would say there's a lot of privilege in that sense. Uh, it was just an advantage to grow up there and have those connections and have this insight but on the other hand sometimes I wonder because it creates these issues in growing up and and, and divorcing yourself from your parents and then growing up and creating something successful and you need to really redefine yourself and we we see this with, with early success in life that it makes things probably harder do you think it is more maybe it's easier to grow up in poverty and basically just discover a library and just hunker down your library and be good to go, right? Because you literally just reading a hundred books, you're going to be way ahead of your family, so to speak, all stereotypes. Do you think it's easy to grow up really poor and unprivileged or
1: is it the privilege actually what you need and you should wish for if you could choose? I, I mean, I just, I'm a sort of a fatalist. I mean, just life deals you the cards you get and that's what you're stuck with. And I, you know, of course I was, Completely unthankful, I didn't realize. I kind of threw it all away and dropped out of high school and never looked back. uh, Just didn't know what I was. Didn't care. You know, I just I just wanted to make my own make my own living, whether it was you know working in the woods or working on boats. That was kind of silly. My daughter, who's who's much more sensible, you know, she'll ask me, Dad, why, why didn't you stay in school? Why didn't you? You know, you could have done. You could do anything, you know. So I, I, just ran away from it. Um, but in a, you know, in a strange way, you can't run away from. It. Of course, you see, I ended up being sort of an intellectual, anyway. It was, it was, I mean, it's it a very strange role model. That my, you know, my father spent his whole life at this place called the Institute for Advanced Study, where you, you, basically, you, you do whatever you want. You just, you just work on whatever you know i and i got to go back there for a year actually and, and doing research and i mean one one of the so everybody's there you're either you either go there for a year or you go there for life there's sort of nothing in between there's sort of one year assignments and, and lifetime appointments and my father very young got a lifetime appointment so I, so i sort of grew up with that was my role model you know he just worked on whatever interested him in. and that's kind of what i've done i mean even though i I always have, you know, made my living with boats or something like that. But but the other part of my life is just intellectually working on whatever subject I I find puzzling or interesting. So so in that sense, I kind of followed the you know the myth that oh I tried to get away from my dad I didn't I kind of followed his path.
0: So. Well, do you say? And I struggle with what, what it really means um, beyond a certain basic meaning. They say you you're only a man once you rescue your father from the belly of the beast, the belly of the whale, all the way down there in your subconscious. Uh, there is this you you this father complex, and Freud was was really talking about that all the time. But there is this, this motivation in us to to as sons, and I have have big troubles with my family too there is this way to identify ourselves and like create that separation between this overarching father theme, but kind of we still want to become like our father, but we don't want to be them, right? And we, we kind of don't want to tell them that we don't want them to know because that would interfere. It's kind of like quantum mechanics. As more they know what we are up to, as less successful it will be. At least in, in my mind, it was like that. And then eventually you, you get to that point and you feel really silly, or I feel really silly. It's it's something, but it's it's very emotional. It's kind of ingrained deeply in my brain, and I didn't choose that, right? So it was either DNA-driven or culture. I don't know where it comes from, but it's yeah. definitely been there before I can consciously remember.
1: Yeah, it's very deep. Of course, it, it, in my case, it was almost, it, you know, very strange that, that, that that's one of my earliest memories as a child you have very early memories that you can't really place the year but but one of my earliest memories is is my father usually it's a child who has a nightmare at night you know you have a bad dream and you go to your parents bed they they tell you it's it's just a dream it's okay but my earliest memories i was asleep i was happily asleep and my dad came in. Because he was having a nightmare. And he had a recurring nightmare because of course in, in World War II, he had been part of the group that that led the firebombing of Dresden and Hamburg. And, and so he had recurring nightmares about um, about this and anyway. He came in when I was I must have been four years old or something, you know, early enough to remember but not and just told me he, you know, I can't sleep. I have this recurring you know, this nightmare, and the plane has crashed, and it's on fire, and, and I, I, I'm i frozen, I can't get the pe- people out. And he'd say, you know, I'm just telling you this, when you, when you grow up, you, you you better go get the people out of the burning, out of the fire. And, and I remember, you know, it was a very real thing, kind of remember, that one. My, my dad is having these nightmares. It's not me who's having the nightmares. Yeah. And I think that was very, very true. I mean, I later, um, yeah. So he, he completely supported me, you know, doing all the strange things I did, even though he, he didn't say that. But later, I kind of learned that.
0: Yeah, I can, I can, I can very much relate to to, to the Dresden story. My family grew up in Dresden. And she, they were all oh, okay. there on that on that night, and they lost basically all their friends right so everyone who was not a neighbor because that neighborhood where they were in wasn't wasn't touched but um, I'd say 67% of the city was was within minutes was basically a place so it yeah it was an event that was even going through the war in Dresden was a city that wasn't hit much by bombers it came kind of out of nowhere because it was too far uh, before yeah. and then one night the whole city vanished it was kind of like the atomic bomb um, just yeah it was no radiation.
1: Enormous tragedy. There's a really good Canadian National Film Board film. It's it's more about Hamburg, but it's about the it's about the fire and with interviews with the surviving pilots who flew, and then inter- interviews with with people on the ground in Germany. Really, really beautifully done. Yeah, but
0: yeah. It's it's really interesting to to see Vincent Churchill, which I read over the weekend. He was an early supporter, like going down to the start of the war, literally when the Blitz happened, which was like six months after the start of the Second World War. He was an early supporter of targeting human population, which was exactly what the Nazis were doing yeah. in, in in London, right? But he basically was this this eye, eye to eye. We um, we wanna we wanna retaliate in the same way, which was you know a much smaller scale in the forties, and it was it was. It wasn't very Christian, so to speak. No, they were—they were—they
1: were—they were deliberately trying to kill children. I mean, that was—that was the whole point: was to to, yeah. to kill kill children. And, and that that needs to be, you know, my my father was sued for libel in England. You know, he he wrote about that, so because it still was against the, you know, the accepted history of what happened. that, that, that this yeah. no, this was intentional. It wasn't an accident.
0: Is something dark happened there, and it was more British than American. And the British were were the ones who were doing all the intelligence, from, for, as far as I know, and the, the details of these raids. But there were lots of American bombers, obviously involved too. But the Americans seemed to be they didn't really know what they were in for. I don't know what the how this actually went down in the particular events, but that seemed to be from from what I read. Well, that's, that's
1: that's where this Canadian Canadian film is so good because. Oh. Quite a no, surprising number of the airmen were can, young Canadians who were not told what they were doing. So this yeah. film kind of gets their stories. Anyway, it's a, it's a yeah, it's, it, that's the importance of history is that we go back and, and, and kind of find the truth. Because even if it's uncomfortable, it's important.
0: Yeah. When you look at other events that you would like to cover that piqued your interest. I know you, you you already have a really monstrous selection of really complicated things that you you put into your box and your outline. Um, what else would you like to look at what what are what are the other events you maybe going to write a book about soon?
1: I I really, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but right now I I really feel like I'm finished. I sort of I wrote my oh, wow. five. Yeah. I mean I wrote 5 books on completely different subjects that I had a very strong passion about and i i think that's enough i don't feel that way about it. Um, i you know i have smaller projects but not i don't i don't have any sense of some big story i need to tell this sort of last book kind of is the you know the big story i wanted to put into words and uh, I'm not, i don't think it's necessarily good to, i mean there's people who write 35 books why I mean, I, if you'd ask me <laughs> 20 years ago, I would have said five was too many, but, but it turns out I think five is a good place to stop.
0: Will you ever write some science fiction?
1: Uh, I'd like to, the, the the current book, the new book actually started as science fiction. It, it had an opening chapter and a closing chapter that were science fiction and, and, and they both, you know, when you write a book, stuff gets taken out and the, and the science fiction got taken out, so um, so that, that might still be, but not, a, I don't think, a book. I, just, I think it's very hard to write fiction. I mean, I, I struggled with it. Yeah. I mean, I what would be the theme you would want to
0: write about, if, if you have the science fiction theme?
1: Well, the the chapters that were taken out of this book was, were an opening chapter and a closing chapter that were both set in the Aleutian Islands, but 10,000 years apart, so, so sort of in the the Aleutian Islands of ten thousand years ago, and in the Aleutian Islands, in the you know reasonably near sort of post digital future, and the point being that that the, the sort of way the natural world works in that remote wilderness is it, 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 you know you know strange way is going to go back to the way it was. So, so I think that could be written. Sort of, I mean, the question is what happens once. You know the way society and technology is going now, where does it end up? Every, that, of course, that's the you know that's the subject of so much good science fiction. So, sort of taking any kind of different take on that is yeah, it's very. I, I listened to your interview with Blaze, who's, who's doing the same thing. It's sort of every, everyone's driven to that. You tell that because you have to tell that story as science fiction. So we're going to get some more Terminator movies I don't don't know I think I mean I I think it's I can't understand why there isn't just incredibly good mainstream you know Hollywood film about about real AI I mean all the movies they all come down to you know the guys build a AI who takes the form of a beautiful woman that's most of the films take that form and or it's the Terminator kind of thing but no no, I mean the real film about what what happens when you really get a fully evolved wild AI on the planet and you know we're heading that way and and you make a very interesting film about about how things would very subtly change because it won't it won't be some terminator kind of thing it'll just be our lives we'll slowly realize that you know we're completely not in control and something else is you can make, make a great film about that with real People and real actors. I so. think Best
0: tried, but they—they anywhere. They, they, they I think it was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, um, they—they've yeah. been so good before in the in the prior season, but the last season that really epitomized this AI, it was it was a joke. I felt. I mean, they—they they had great story elements, but they never played on them, and they just dropped them. I don't know what happened to them.
1: Yeah. No. It, t- it would take a real, you know, the, the director would have to come in who was a kind of a Kubrick kind of genius to to just force. To, or or two thousand one was a good example. I mean a film that really shifted the the kind of level of what what people thought. Yeah,
0: I'm really looking forward to that. I hope someone will figure it out and, and, and get some movie out of it. Well, George, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on the show. It was such an yes. honor. I really Thank appreciate you. that. Thank
1: you. It's great to have a have, have a, a relaxed conversation.
0: And same here. Same here. Hopefully, we get to do this again in the future. Maybe when you publish another book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. <Yeah>. Never <laughs> say never. Yeah. yeah. George. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.